Amen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Can you stand with me in honor of God's word? Look at Acts 9, 1. We'll read a few verses here. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground but when he opened his eyes he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. And I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him so that he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel, and I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He regained his sight, then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Father in heaven, there is so much for us to glean from Saul's conversion. And Lord, I just ask that you would encourage us. Help us to see that just as you changed lives and called people in the ministry then, you're doing the very same thing today. And God, I ask that if it need be that tonight there would be a Damascus Road experience for individuals here. Father, I can't think of a better time of year than the end of the year, than about to go into a new year. Our lives have been changed by God and God alone. Father, speak a word. Father, redirect courses and lives. Father, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You can be seated. Tonight I want to look at one of the most glaring differences, and it seems like I seem to come up to it again and again and again. I don't care if it's politics. I don't care if it's church. It seems that I see this difference so much, and tonight we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9, 10, and 11, portions from each, to reinforce this truth. I want to start by stating what this difference, I don't know, but it, it, it seems to jump out at me, and maybe it will to you too, maybe not, but 
I thought we could start from stating what this glaring difference is between believers and unbelievers, and then we can kind of work from there. And when I say it, you're going you're gonna to say, yeah, I, but I really want you to think about it. The difference between believers and unbelievers is that unbelievers do not think that anyone can genuinely change. And they're forever keeping score. They'll say things like, can a leopard change its spots? And it seems like people are always known by what they once did or, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're always bringing it up. I don't know if your family is like my family, but my family has incredible memory. I, I, mean, we have, I, I mean, we have crazy memories. We talk about things that happened 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago like it happened yesterday. I mean, that's how vivid our memories are. I mean, my, my oldest living brother, he would be my second oldest brother, but my oldest living brother right now, he is, he's got to be 70. He can remember who he went to movies with in high school, and he can remember the clothes that he was wearing. I can remember crawling out of my crib. I can remember drinking from a bottle. Um, I can, I mean, we, we can, I can vividly remember years before kindergarten, vividly remember. I can remember being three years old. I can, we just have very, very strong memories. And there's a tendency when I'm around my family members for them to remind me who I was and they kind of don't know me as much by who I am. And I think that unbelievers can do the same thing. You know, you're not fooling us. You're, isn't that the carpenter's son? Didn't they do the same thing to Jesus? Unbelievers struggle. They struggle. They struggle believing that someone can genuinely change. You see it in politics all the time. People are known by the mistakes that they made 30 years ago. As if no one can ever change. You know, maybe a leopard can't change their spots, but God can change a heart. And so, knowing that unbelievers seldom have new days and fresh starts with slates wiped clean, I want to kind of tackle change that takes place. I want to talk about change happens. Change happens in order for us to get saved, and change happens once we are saved. I've seen people get saved and never change. And then I see people that grasp that we're not just saved, we are being saved. There is, there is a part of the kingdom of God that is, that is realized now, but then there's another part that's not yet. There's a part of the kingdom of God that is here right now, and then there's a part that we'll fully realize one day. There is ongoing change in the life of a healthy believer. And I want to talk about these two dynamics tonight because believers in Jesus Christ, especially those who attend church regularly, see change consistently happen in lives. And so to um, illustrate this a little bit, I want to talk about my life, maybe give you a portion of my testimony that I don't think I brought up much. Um, and Lisa's always saying to me, why don't you share some of the stories that you've not shared before? You seem to share some of the same stories. And I'm like, okay, I'll share. So I uh, remembered this part of my life. Um, I, when I was in high school, when I was in 10th grade, I was wrestling on 
the varsity team. And it's not because I was such a great wrestler. It's because that slot that my weight was just was kind of weak. And I was only a second year wrestler. So the, the second year I was ever wrestling in my life, I'm wrestling varsity. And so I'm, they're just wiping the mat with me. You know, I was a good athlete and I was strong, but it didn't matter. Those guys knew how to wrestle and they were like two years older than me. And I was, I was a boy wrestling men. And, uh, and so it was just a real difficult time for me, just getting the tar beat out of me all the time. And uh, one of the seniors on the wrestling team, in fact, he was a captain, and he came from a, a, one of those families that just had all these amazing wrestling, you know, the, all these amazing wrestlers in the family. I mean, his name at my high school, just his name, you know, you kind of think of with, with wrestling. He um, kind of tagged me with a nickname, and I'm so glad that it didn't stick, but he... Uh, he started calling me promiscuous. I'd see him all the time, and he'd go, instead of calling me promiscuous, he'd go, hey, promiscuous, how you doing? And finally, one day, I go, promiscuous, what does that mean? And he goes, look it up. Okay. You know, I look it up, and I'm like, oh. And I realized that he was calling me that because there must have been something to it. You know, he had seen me enough to know that even in 10th grade, I was already known for my promiscuous activities so much so that he tried to tag me with a, with a nickname like that. I'm so glad that it didn't stick. I can't imagine walking around, hey, promiscuous, how's it going? Um, but I got saved at 20, and I had done a lot of living um, up until 20. And um, not until my honeymoon night when I was 28 years old did I have sexual intercourse from the time that I got saved until the time that I was married, no small feat because there was definitely opportunity. I went to a large church, and church girls can be just as aggressive as any other girls. And, uh, and so it wasn't without, I mean, I got propositioned, um, you know, by church girls. And uh, so it wasn't like there weren't obstacles, but my sex drive, God didn't change my sex drive, God changed my heart. He changed my heart, and he made me value things that I didn't value before. I'm a life that's, that's changed. And if God could change me, I believe that he could change anybody. And so I want to look at two examples of change in Scripture tonight. One powerful example of going from darkness to light at conversion. The other one is someone that's already saved and filled with the Spirit whose traditions got challenged to the core. And before we jump on the, you know, I don't have any traditions. We all have traditions. And some of them are good and healthy. And some of them are just things that we instinctively believe so strongly that they almost take on a greater importance to us than God's word. And so I want to challenge these things tonight. So if you guys are in for it, you know, let's look at it. Many of you know before Saul became the apostle Paul, he was a vicious murderer of Christians. And it didn't matter to Saul if they were men or women. What he would do is he would have them arrested. I mean, he'd have them dragged out of their very homes. And more often than not, they would be beheaded. That was typically what would happen to them. Paul was vicious. And he was a zealot. And he believed that he was serving God by stopping all of these whack jobs that were of the way or the early Christians, he thought that they were nuts. He thought that they were crazy. And so here he has got papers from the leading, he has authorization from the leading priests. He has got more 
power at his disposal than he's ever had before, and he's going to make good on it. And he, the Bible says, is still breathing murderous threats as he's on the way to Damascus. And there God meets him. Jesus meets him. Now, this is significant. How many of you know that Jesus has long since ascended into heaven now? But the risen Christ now meets Paul. And you see him bring this up in 1 Corinthians 15 again. And lastly, as one born out of time, Paul says, he appeared to me too. So the risen Christ appears to Paul and levels him, knocks him to the ground, and he's blind for three days. And yet, he immediately knew that it was the Lord. You know, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. Isn't it amazing that Paul was persecuting the church, but Jesus said, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. How many of you know you mess with Jesus' body? You mess with him. It's his body. It's his body. And you don't touch his body. You don't mess his body. Whenever I hear somebody ripping on the church or they're vicious towards the church, I'm thinking, mm, you're messing with Jesus. You're messing with Jesus. I don't care what your opinion of those Christians over there are or those Christians over there. That's his body. You don't mess with Jesus' body. I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting, Paul. And that's why your butt's on the ground right now. I love this account. In fact, love this account so much that, I don't know if many of you know this, but we came close our early days of our church, changing our church name to Straight Street. We were going to call our church Straight Street Church. I wanted to do it. We were working on the designs. Uh, Pastor Tony Pasquino, who now pastors in Traverse City, was my worship leader. He had friends in Traverse City, and they were working on logo and design, and they were sending it to us. And that's how serious we were about this. And I sought some counsel, as I do on every major decision, and they said, hey, man, I don't know, man. And I, I really, I, I, I thought, man, let's do this. Let's go for it. And uh, we just pulled back, just didn't. Didn't as, as excited as I was about the principal straight street, just didn't feel like it, it, it was the kind of church name that we wanted. And little did I know, you know, with all of the same-sex marriage stuff going on, how easily it would have been for that to be taken wrong, you know, and for us to be accused of being this or that or another thing. And so I'm kind of glad that I didn't. I think we'll reach more people as Restore Church than we would as Straight Street Church. I want to share just a few things about Paul's conversion because Paul's conversion is one of the most significant in the history of Christianity. If you take into consideration that he ended up writing two-thirds in the New Testament, his conversion is very, very significant to Christianity, the history of Christianity. But so significant was Paul's conversion that Luke records it not once, not twice, but he records it three times in the book of Acts. Paul's conversion. You see it here in Acts 9. You see it before a Jewish crowd in the temple area in Acts 22. And you see it before King Agrippa in Acts 26. Three times Paul's conversion is mentioned. As one commentary put it, Paul went from persecutor of the church to persecutor for the church or persecuted for the church. My favorite part of Paul's conversion is Acts 9, 10 through 16. And I love this portion of Scripture. 
here. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of uh, Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the, about the terrible things this man's done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Well, let's be honest. Put yourself in Ananias' shoes. You cannot blame him. But Lord, I've heard about this guy. And the Lord said, go. He's praying right now. Go. And he's seen a vision. Ananias, he's seen a vision of you coming in. The, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine that? The Lord tells him, go. He's praying right now. He's my chosen instrument. And isn't it amazing that the Lord called Paul, or then Saul, his chosen instrument, before anybody even knew of his conversion? Ananias is like the first to hear of it. And yet God said, yeah, that guy that, that was murdering Christians, he's my chosen instrument. Can you imagine, you know, Ananias' brain? You know, it's like those commercials where there's just a puff of purple smoke. It must have just blown his mind. Your, your chosen instrument, what, to kill us all? You know, chosen instrument. Go, he's praying right now, and he's had a vision, and he's seen you coming and laying hands on him. I love it. I just love, I love the whole concept of everything that took place at Straight Street. I love the fact that Paul, who thought he was seeing so clearly, was blind for three days. Ananias comes in and lays hands on him. He gets filled with the Holy Spirit. Scales fall from his eyes. I mean, what an amazing, amazing moment. It's why I wanted to change our church name to Straight Street. Man, what an awesome name it was. Yet God would show me that that's not as much of who you are as you are going to be used to be a place of restoration and healing in the community. I love how God is declaring who Paul is before anyone even knew about him. He's my chosen instrument. Isn't it amazing that God can use anybody that he wants to? As just like kind of like a great big in your face to everybody. Seriously? Seriously? This guy that's killing Christians? I'm going to change his life. I'm gonna, he's going to run into a brick wall called Jesus. I'm going to change his life, and I am going to use him like no one has been used I'm going to use him. God says, my chosen instrument. One of the most powerful conversions in Christian history, God's chosen instrument, totally redirects the course of his life. And the thing I love about Paul more than anybody else, just as zealous and aggressive as Paul was when he wasn't serving the Lord, he was that and change serving the Lord. It's like he, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't table who he was. You know what always whacks me out? What whacks me out are these people that are these party animals before they come to know the Lord, and then they're so holy that it's awkward once they come to know the Lord. And then everybody sees them and says, man, that's not who you, where's the guy, you know, that with a lampshade on his head? Where's, where's that? Why do we have to lose our passion and why do we have to lose our zeal when we become Christians? No wonder why people won't come to church with us. We're freaking them out. We're not, we don't even seem like, what happened, man? Did God kill your personality too? Did he, you know, what happened to you? You know, man, you used to be so much fun to be around. Now you're so holy, you're scaring me. You know, what the heck? Where's the passion? Where's the life? Where is that? 
Saul didn't. Saul, Saul was changed by God. His heart was changed, but his passion was now focused where it should have been. It was directed where it should have been. I love that about him. I love it. I love that he was just as passionate once he came to know the Lord as he was when he wasn't even serving him and opposing the Lord. I absolutely love that. Now go to Acts 10 with me. And let's look at this account with Peter. And if you think Saul's conversion rattled people's cages, what happens here with Peter messed with the church more than anything up to this point. It says in Caesarea there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon about three o'clock he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said, Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon a Tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on a flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry, but while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws had declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times, then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? Just then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. Wow. I love this. Unlike Paul, Peter here is saved and he's filled with the Spirit already. He is a key leader in the church. And Peter's still wrestling with this vision that he's had when three men show up at the door of the house he's staying at. God tells Peter to go with them without hesitation. Go with them. Question nothing, just go. Peter goes with the men sent by Cornelius and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles just like he had on Peter and the disciples. Why was this such a big deal for Peter? And why was the vision so necessary? I had somebody call me the other day and they were listening to the Bible on, um, as they were driving because they do a lot of driving for their job. And they said, okay, I'm, I'm at this portion, you know, what's the deal with the sheet? And what's the deal with the, and talking about this, this part right here. And I went in to explain what it was all about. Let me tell you why it was such a big deal. Look at Acts 10, 28. The first part of Acts 10, 28. I'm sorry, I'm in 11. 10, 28. Peter told them, You know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. 
And then look at Acts 11, 1 through 3. This is where Peter's giving an account of what happened at Cornelius' house. He's telling James and the other Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem, soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. Good Jewish boys, they didn't do that. Good Jewish boys, they didn't associate with Gentiles. They didn't go into their homes, and they definitely didn't eat what they were eating. Hey, Peter, we're making breakfast. It's bacon and eggs. What do you think? Do you want some? So Jews not only didn't eat with Gentiles, they didn't enter their homes, they didn't. And so all of a sudden, Peter grasps the meaning of the vision, and you see the second part of Acts 10 28. It says, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. See, Peter realized that God wanted him to reach the Gentiles. Isn't it amazing that in order for God to use Peter to reach people, he had to deal with some of Peter's traditions? Because how many of you know that if Peter was going to stay in a Gentile home, man, he had to eat what was put before him. Where you lead me, I will follow. What you feed me, I will swallow. So goes the missionary's mantra. So here, Peter's in a Gentile home. I'm sorry, we don't have anything kosher here. No locks and bagels. But we do got a pig that we just slaughtered out back. And Peter had to eat what was ever put before him. And God had to deal with this because how many of you know if God hadn't dealt with him, he would have been all hung up in his traditions and he wouldn't have ministered to them effectively. I should not be sitting here. I should not be eating this, but God dealt with him before. I also think it's significant that three times the vision took place. How many days was Paul blind? Three. I think there's a significance there. I think that we can be spiritually blind, and I think we can be blind in our traditions. I think that we can be blind, and then we can see at conversion, just like Saul, who became Paul. And then I think we can be so blinded by our traditions that God can't use us. And let's just be honest. I don't think that what we're talking about is a determiner as to whether we go to heaven or not. I think we're talking about usefulness. I would like to use you in the lives of some other people, but if you can't get over some of your spiritual traditions, if you can't get over some of these things, if you can't make these hurdles, I, I'm, you, I've used you. I'm, you're pretty capped out. You're pretty ceilinged out here. I won't be able to use you any more than you. And I'm so grateful for how you've been used, but I would really like to use you more. See, I think God wants to use us a lot more than maybe we could see ourselves being used, but we've got to get over some of our hang-ups. We've got to get over some of the things that we want to make a big deal. I don't always believe that it's as big a deal to God as we'd want to make it a big deal. Some of the things that we're hung up on here in America, I guarantee you, they're not hung up on in other countries. It's amazing how we've got our traditions, and it's so important to us here, and God's saying, I just want to use you to reach some people. I do, you know, would you go over to Cornelius' house? There's a house full. And they want to know more about the Holy Spirit. They want to know about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Could, would you? 
man, I don't know, man. I don't know if I could do it. I think we need to get over some of that stuff. And that's a message in, in and of itself. But God had to change Peter's heart and mind concerning the Gentiles. So I've seen two kinds of change happen in my life. The change that comes at conversion like Paul and the change that comes as I continue to grow in Jesus Christ like Peter's. Both are powerful and both determine how God can use us. I found that God just doesn't want us to be used to bring change to those around us. I have also found that God wants to keep changing us so that he can use us to bring change to those who are far from us. I think sometimes we feel like we're only supposed to be used for those that are around us. And I'm grateful, man. Each one reach one. Absolutely. I'm, I, I, I think that's awesome. But what if God wants to use you for a bunch of people that are far from you? that are way outside of your circle of influence. Maybe you don't even speak the same language. What, what about those people? Can't God do whatever he wants to do? But I think it's difficult for us to make some of those leaps and for us to, 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 to hurdle some of those obstacles because of our mindsets and because of our traditions. And I think God is so much bigger than the things that we get hung up on. It's almost like God wants to have a conversation with us. I'd really like you to use, I'd really like to use you to reach some folks, but some of the things that they do, you're gonna kind of freak. Can you not freak so that I can use you? Because their souls are important to me too. I don't know, man. I came out of all of that. I'd really I don't know. And that's why I'm sending you. Could I use you? Peter was asked by God to enter a house he never would have and to associate and eat with those he never would have. Peter had to eat food that Jews call unclean, yet God sent his Holy Spirit to fall on those Gentiles just because Peter was obedient. I love the account. It says while Peter was still talking, Holy Spirit falls. And he looks at the, at the brothers he, that came with him. This is just like on us. This is, this is, this is what happened to us. Man, so the gift of the Holy Spirit's poured out on Gentiles too. Peter never would have seen it, never would have been a part of it if he couldn't have allowed God to deal with his traditions. And I love the fact that God didn't even give him time to think about it. While Peter was still puzzling over the vision, God said, hey, three men are at the door. Go with them without hesitation. Okay. He must have been in like the twilight zone for a little bit. God's telling me to eat things that are unclean. Now he wants me to go with the people that are unclean. How many of you know that God's vision is always bigger? God's heart is always bigger. So I want to offer a few thoughts here. If we're not careful, we can exchange relationship with God for traditions about God. And I have found this out. Whatever you do, don't make the things that are important to you more important than God is to you. Don't do it. Don't you dare do it. I don't care how you were raised. I don't care what denomination you were raised in. Don't you dare make the things that you've been raised with more important than the God that you've come to know. In fact, the healthier the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ, the more he's leading you, the more you are discovering, the more he is revealing to you. It is an ongoing freshness and newness. And just when you think you've got the corner on a certain theological market, God blows your mind. 
fries your circuits. I'm so grateful for a God that fries circuits. So grateful. Religion says this is how it is and asks that you come to them. Relationship that says this is who he is and goes to them. Let me say that again. Religion says this is how it is and asks that you come to them. Relationship says this is who he is and goes to them. See, religion wants you to come to the box. This is my box. Would you please come to it? No, 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 I won't come to you because I don't want to step outside of my box. This is my box. I'm comfortable in my box, and if you want to be a part of me or want to be a part of us, then you need to come to the box. See, relationship has no box. Relationship's not confined to a box, so a relationship can go. A relationship can step outside of the box. Relationship realizes that it's not about the box. It's about the God of the box. And I've got God wherever I go. I don't have a box. Religion says, this is my box. And you either like my box, you embrace my box, or you don't. Relationship says, yeah, there's a box. You know, yeah, but I want to tell you about why I go to that box. And I'm willing to step outside of it because I don't lose significance as a believer in Jesus once I step outside of it. What's going to happen if I step outside of the church's front doors all by myself? What's going to happen? See, we, we want these traditions, and we want this formula, and we want this, this box because we're comfortable in there. It's cozy, and it's warm in there, and it's a little bit scary out there. But what about all of the people that came to us when we were out there? What about all the people that were unafraid and unashamed and they reached out to us? And they didn't worry if we thought that their pastor was a little weird or the church was a little stiff or a little starchy. They didn't care. Man, we want you to come. We, no, 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 we'll come get you. We'll come pick you up. No, no, no. Well, how about if I just come over and have coffee with you and we talk? Man, we've been talking for a few weeks now. I really want to go check your church out. Man, that would be awesome. You know, maybe people want to see if we're real and if we're genuine before they ever are a part of something that we place so much important significance on. Religion is a box that you can't venture too far from. Relationship knows no box and ventures out. Isn't it amazing? The Bible does not record Jesus saying, tell them to come so that you may make disciples of all men. It says, go out. Go out. Go out. Go out. The majority of Jesus' ministry was outside of the synagogue, outside of the temple. The majority of it. That's where it was done. In fact, I think some of his greatest opposition was inside the church. See, out there they just want to know that you're real. For whatever reason, a lot of the times in here they want to know that you're like them. They just want what's real out there. Is is that real what you got working on? Is, is that legit? Sometimes we present such a pretty picture in here that it doesn't seem tangible, it doesn't seem real. Healthy Christians are those that have gotten saved and they're still being saved. They're still growing. 
I wonder why Peter, out of all the individuals that could say so, says at the end of 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, if you'll read 2 Peter, you'll notice that book starts speaking about growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it ends speaking about growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Healthy Christianity, healthy believers are growing. They're growing. They're growing. Keep growing. Keep growing. Pastor John, how do I know if I am growing in a healthy way? Your appetite should be increasing. I mean, if the things of God after you've been a Christian for a while are just the biggest turnoff for you, you know what, man, I... I used to listen to worship all the time. I used to read my Bible all the time. I used to go to church all the time. Where'd your appetite go? You're not healthy. Something's wrong when your spiritual appetite isn't, isn't good and strong. I mean, man, I'm flipping through the TV and I'm checking preachers out. I want to find a, a good message. And so I'm trying to catch Robert Morris. I'm trying to catch these these, these preachers on Stephen, like Stephen Furtick the other day, if I don't get caught up in what he's wearing, um, I'm, I'm watching him. He can preach. Um, I'm, and I try not to stick to a circle that I'm more comfortable with. I try to, to go outside of the circle. I mean, because the word's the word. I even listen to some preachers that are not supposedly spirit-filled. And then even then, the definition of spirit-filled can take on all kinds of meaning. I mean, when you're hungry, you're not too fussy. 2018, I want to so get outside the box. I'm afraid of getting boxed in. I think I got a fear. Let me confess my fear. I am afraid of getting boxed in. I'm afraid of getting so lost in the church that I never venture out of the doors again. What if we went street evangelizing? What if we went down to the fair and led people to the Lord? What if we did crazy stuff like that? Some of you are just freaking at the even thought of that. To be true, when our church started years ago, that's what we did, our very first church picnic. We went street evangelizing, and then we met for a picnic afterwards. That's what we did. When we started the church, I would walk around with my business cards, and I'd walk around and go door to door and just say, hey, you know, we're a church. We're meeting in the middle school. Just wanted you to know about us. We're going to find a way to get out there in the community. That's what we're going to do. Because as we go out, we're changed. And it's always for the better. And so tonight, I want to close in prayer. And we'll open up the altars if anybody wants prayer.